For those whom have seen The Keepers, you will remember Edgar Davis as the odd older man interviewed by the producers. Edgar remains one of our suspects for Sister Kathy's murder. In fact, at one point, he admits to calling in to a radio show, saying he knew what happened to Kathy. In another section of The Keepers, you witness Gemma and the crew speak with Officer James Skinnell. Skinnell was the first officer on the scene when Sister Kathy's remains were discovered. When asked about the abuse by Father Maskell, Skinnell told the producers, some girls just make things up for attention. Today you are going to hear from a very brave survivor who wasn't featured in The Keepers. Michelle Stanton can link Edgar Davis with Officer James Scannell, a very important connection. We know already of Father Maskell's strong ties to the police department. It's starting to get harder to doubt the involvement of this monster, whom seems to have always been lurking in the shadows. Tonight we want to welcome my really good friend and one of my sheroes, Michelle Stanton. And Michelle is a Keogh woman, and she is going to talk about her experiences tonight. Her story is really a different one. We met a couple years ago, actually, through Facebook Messenger. I think I contacted Michelle because someone gave me her name, and I reached out and tried not to be too nosy, but we've gotten to be besties. and. I just adore this person. We have a mutual admiration society. And yes, then, yeah. And then last year, I had the privilege of meeting Michelle. She and her husband came to stay with me a couple of days at the beach. And so here we are. Thank you for the <laughs> wonderful introduction, Gemma. You can talk more about yourself if you can say whatever you want, what you don't do. And it's really up to you. Yeah, I just briefly, I live here in Annapolis with my husband and I'm a psychotherapist. So actually, I actually work with trauma survivors. So it's been a really interesting life for me and a long, strange trip, you could say. And I'm really happy to do whatever I can to support my peers and my alumni. And you and I certainly gotten together and started this go fund me for survivors. I have a lot of strong feelings about people being cut off from treatment precipitously. So that's something we continue to work on together. And I'm happy to give support in whatever way I can and educate people about some of the experiences that I've had and hopefully come to some kind of sure maybe about the sister Kathy thing and about the whole experience that I had at Keo in the late sixties and early seventies. Mm-hmm. I guess that's a pretty good summary of where I am. Well you we've talked about you have three parallel stories. First being with Edgar Davidson, the second right. being with Sister Kathy and Sister Russell, and the third yep. being with Joseph Maskell. So Can we start chronologically and then everybody will understand why you're so unique? What you shared with me a couple of years ago was that when you were in the, I think you said the eighth grade, you lived across from carriage house apartments and you had friends that went to Rockland Middle School. So can you start there? Sure. So actually, I lived in the townhouse, the Jamestown townhouses that were a little bit north of the the apartment. And so I was actually right across the street from Rockland Junior High. And I had come here when I was 12 years old. I had moved here with my parents from New York. And the townhouse was like a transition for us, okay? And so until my parents decided exactly where they wanted to Settle. Yeah, I did have friends that went to Rockland Junior High and friends that went to St. Agnes. I was going to St. Agnes at the time. So we would hang out in the neighborhood and um, probably about 13, I started noticing that there was this young man who would be driving around Rockland Junior High. And it was interesting because he would drive around in different cars, but they were all seemed to be like sports cars. So he was the quintessential greaser of the time. 
kind of back then when he wasn't like a hippie kind of person, but a very handsome young man, but older, like 20s or something. And I thought it was odd that he was hanging around Rockland Junior High, but at a certain point, he would be playing music really loud. And so my friend and I would talk to him outside the car. And I can't remember when, because again, memory is like a mosaic. You get pieces of it. But what I can remember is at a certain point, I started getting in the car with him. Okay. I can't tell you why I did that. Maybe because it made me feel grown up to be riding around with someone in a sports car or he was playing music I liked. I don't know. But again, just started riding around. It soon became apparent that he was kind of a predatory guy. He was very charming and very engaging, but things started taking strange turn during some of those rides. We would go and we would go up to the Veterans Cemetery or we would drive into Irvington. And over time, he started becoming more physical or just trying trying to become more physical with me at the time. And I was probably like 14, I'm thinking, probably finishing up eighth grade. This happened probably, I have to say, at least half a dozen times, probably. One of the things that would happen is that my mother would panic. And this is kind of a you know sidebar here. My mother would panic because I would be gone for a while and she would call the police. I, I would be coming home. He would drop me off as the entrance to Jamestown Court and I would, I would walk in and the police would be standing in, in my home and just smirking. And my mother would say, where has you been? And I would say, I was just walking around with friends. And she's like, no, you weren't. And, the, and I thought it was really odd because the police would just be like smirking at me, like smiling and not really doing it. It was just a very strange situation that continued to develop at a certain point. I was invited. I was told that I was going to be meeting someone who was in the car, who was actually a veteran from Vietnam. Actually, he was home on leave. And I was told that, quote, I should be really nice to him because we don't know that he's ever going to come back alive. He may never come back again. And when I got to the car, which was across the street near Rock Glen, I noticed that one of the police officers was in the car with Edgar Davidson and that we were going to be going to meet this individual. And there was at least one other male in the car. And I cannot remember who that was, or it may be that I don't recognize or remember who that was. We drove to the movie theater, which is no longer open in, in, in Irvington. And we parked outside the movie theater and this young man got in the car And it was a very intimidating situation and very traumatizing. Even talking about it is really traumatizing. But again, I felt like I had a lot of pressure on me. I had a lot of eyes on me. Can't tell you why I went or why I didn't refuse. All I can tell you is that I felt compelled to go. Here were all of the adults, these adults telling me, get in the car, you should you feel really sorry for this guy and you should be really nice to him. So that really sticks out in my mind because that police officer who was in the car was the police officer who was in the keepers who you talked with, the gentleman who passed away, I think, right after the keepers was filmed. Nell was his last name, I believe. And the reason I know this is because I actually saw pictures of him when he was, I saw a number of police officers and I was able to identify him as being someone who had been in the car with Mr. Davidson and who had been at my home. So the whole thing, when I start to put the pieces together, certainly in therapy, has started to feel a little conspiratorial or it, it just has the air of something that is interconnected in a pretty sinister way. Another incident I had was that I went with a couple of my friends, or at least 
one, I think it was two friends. They said, we know these nuns who live in the apartments. They're really cool. They play the guitar and we go there and hang out all the time. Do you want to go with us? And I said, sure. And so we went down to the carriage house apartment and this would have been in like the summer of 1969, right before I started TO. And I walked into the apartment and I saw two women there. They were not in habits or anything. And and they welcomed me. And there were also some males there who at the time I did not recognize. I'm still not 100% sure who they were. I have some theories about who they might have been, but they were also there, okay? And so my friends and I sat down, we started talking. I know that some people were actually playing the guitar. I believe that there was some pot smoking going on. It became a, a situation that I was becoming increasingly actually more uncomfortable with. At a certain point, I was invited to go into another room, okay? I cannot get that memory back of what happened in the other room, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Gone. I have been able to retrieve that. But I do remember that, who I now know are Sister Kathy and Sister Russell. That was their apartment. They had some male friends over. The last thing I remember Sister Kathy saying to me is, now you know where we are. Please come over and hang out anytime you like. And I remember that when I left, I had a very bad feeling that I can't explain to you, but just a very uncomfortable feeling. And I thought to myself, I know I'm never going to go back there again. I just felt like something was a myth. That's the best way I can describe it. Do you remember who your friends were that were playing the guitars or you for you to share. You know what? I cannot remember their names. The only, it's funny. The things I remember about them were that they lived in, in the townhouses with me and they were Tom. They were both, the two girls were tomboys. Okay. And what they used to do is I was afraid of grasshoppers because I had never seen big grasshoppers because I came from New York and they used to chase me with grasshoppers. And that's all I remember about them. I just cannot remember <laughs> their I'm really sorry. But a couple of months later, I started at Keo. And then I learned just about a month after that, or two months after that, that Sister Kathy had gone missing. And I, it, it was it felt very strange to hear that when I had just seen her a few months before. Um, and so then I started my whole Keo career, if you will. I know that you, you started attending Keo uh, shortly after... Sister Kathy disappeared. Was that, did you know that, that that was Sister Kathy when you went into her apartment or when you started Keo? No, I knew that they were nuns, okay? And I knew, I did not know the connection with Keo because I think at that time, Shirley had already left Keo yes, and started yes. teaching another school and, and she didn't have a habit on. So I didn't make the connection until I got to Keo, which would mm-hmm. have been a few months before she went missing. Okay. And when you started EO, if I, I know you mentioned two males being in the apartment as well. Right. One of those males or both of those males were a part of the school. Do you think you would have made that click back then? Oh, okay. That was someone who was there. I don't remember them. Honestly, I don't remember them being a part of the school. Okay. Mm-hmm. That piece I do not remember. I can't Are, tell you sure. I don't mm-hmm. think don't think it was like Father Maskell and Father Magnus. I really don't think it may have been somebody else loosely connected, but I don't think that it was the priest. Can you go back a minute to the experience you had in the car with James Scannell and Edgar? Do you remember who was driving? Believe that Edgar was driving. Okay. And are you free to share with us what happened to you that was it during the afternoon or the evening? It was in the early evening, I believe. Like it was just mm-hmm. getting dark. And right. suffice it to say that I got in the back, well, I was already in the back, but the young man got in the back seat with me and there was a sexual interaction. I can go that far. Okay. 
you mentioned to me that you may have had something to drink. Do you remember if they gave you a soda or so- something to drink? I believe I probably had a soda or something like that when we were driving. Did you <laughs> tell anyone or were you too shocked that it happened? I know that happens a lot. So I was just curious on if you did tell anyone. Did I tell anyone? No, I didn't tell anyone because I was terrified that I honestly, that I was going to get in trouble. Okay. And the, the, the way that this memory came. Okay. So I always had the memory of this experience. I never lost it. But the interesting thing is that the actual total memory came back to me when my husband and I were actually having dinner here one night. And he mentioned something about a pea coat. And I remember that that was when I, my mother had just gotten me a new pea coat. And that was what I was wearing when mm-hmm. this happened. And I was very concerned about something happening to my coat and getting in trouble. So I wasn't about to share that with anyone or tell anyone because I felt like I was going to get in trouble and I held it in for a long time. I did ultimately tell my best friend about it. Michelle, you said that police officers were at your home because yeah. um, you, I guess you were out longer than you should have been or or is that the situation yes because i was saying that i was walking around when actually Mm -hmm. i was riding around with her in the car those Mm -hmm. times would you recognize those officers or do you know who they were i know that the one was officer skinnell and i don't remember who the other one was i think i'm in your house in my house, he, yeah. He came my, to your home, okay. He came to my home, yes. I cannot remember what his name was, but I remember that when I saw a whole slew of pictures, I was able to isolate that person. I didn't know who he was. And I guess then when she was found, that was even more, made it even more intense. It, it was, I just felt, I felt very confused and wanted to just put it out of my head because if you recall, what I felt when I left there was a deep feeling of discomfort. Can't tell you why, okay? Mm-hmm. Just a sense of foreboding that I would never be going back there again. And so when then right. when I heard that she had been she was missing and then found, that just brought it home even more. Were you living at the Jamestown area the court there when you started at Keogh? Yes, I was. And I, st- I was there until my junior year. Okay. So you rode a bus? Yep. Rode a bus to school? Yes. The detective came and knocked on the door. And I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Okay. So talk to us about how you met Neil Magnus and Joseph Maskell. Okay, so I, I when I started at Keogh, I, I was a very religious child, okay? I was used to going to Mass every day. I come from a, a half French-Canadian Catholic and half Italian-American Catholic family. And so my whole life was the church, okay? And I wanted to start going to the chapel every day. And I certainly wanted to go to confession because confession was something I was taught was very important as far as being able to continue to receive communion and be forgiven for my sins. And I certainly was taught to understand that priests were the representation of Jesus or God on earth. And so I had a great deal of veneration and respect for priests. And so I wanted to go to confession. And I remember that I had a big sister and other, you know, upperclassmen who were saying, you really shouldn't go to confession. It's not a good idea. And I would say like, why can't I go to confession? I really, it's something I need to do. And they're saying, I wouldn't do it. I'd stay away from the chapel. I'd stay away from the confessional. And but I, I thought that was ridiculous. So I went, I remember walking in there and kneeling and praying before confession and having, once again, that sense of foreboding or that sense of, I, everybody's telling me I shouldn't do this, but I know I need to do this because it's part of my belief system. And so I went in and it was actually Father Maskell who was in the confessional. And he started asking me these really inappropriate questions, like very personal questions, like things like, do you ever think about boys? And what do you think about them? And how, do you have any, like asking me if I had ever had any sexual experiences and things like that. And then I noticed that he had slid the, the little screen back and that it appeared to me that he was engaging in, in inappropriate behavior. And, and at some point, in some way, and I cannot tell you how, okay, I was somehow at some point being fondled in that confessional, okay, mm. as wow. I was talking. And I don't know how that happened. I can't explain it to you, okay? I remember that I felt total shame and guilt and disgust. And when I walked out of there, I was shaking all over and I was shaking so badly that when I went to kneel on the kneeler, I almost passed out. I felt so violated. And so I kept it inside. I said my penance. I left. I never went back. I tried very hard to stay away from, from Father Maskell because, quite frankly, he frightened me. Shortly thereafter, I started being called to Father Magnus's office. And what Father Magnus told me was that I was being singled out to have a special kind of freshman orientation because it was clear that you know, I was a superior student, I was much more mature than the other girls, and that he really wanted to give me the attention that I deserved. He had spoken with Father Maskell, and they felt that I needed some ongoing special counseling to support me because I was this really special person. And he was very kind initially and very engaging. And he would say to me, you can unbutton the top button of your shirt, which we were forbidden to do. You can roll your skirt up when you're in here. He would always give me something to drink when I would go in, like, I don't know, tea sometimes or a Coke or a cab or something like that. And I remember I would put my seat up on his desk and things like that. And so that started happening more and more frequently. Neil Magnus, right? Not Maskell. That is correct. That is correct. Okay. Not Maskell. Yeah. Okay. What ended up happening was that um, 
It was more and more frequent. In fact, my best friend would say to me, he really taken an interest in you. And I said, yeah, he really wants me to do well. I wanted, I wanted to major in religious philosophy in college. And we would have these deep, meaningful conversations. And the interesting thing about it, Gemma, was that that I would walk into his office. Okay, I remember walking in. I would remember sitting down. I would remember having something to drink, putting my feet up on the desk, starting these conversations. And then there were times when all I could remember was closing the door behind me and leaving, okay? It wasn't until I got some treatment back in the 90s, okay, when I answered that initial ad asking if anyone had any kind of weird experiences that I started putting it together in my mind, the feelings I would have when I would try to go back to that place. And so I I started having little pieces of more memories. There was a memory that came to me where I was in the health week and I was ill and and my best friend was with me again and they called Father Magnus to come down. Father Magnus came down. He asked my friend to leave. He drew the curtain around us. I cannot remember what happened. Okay. The things I do remember that I shared with the archdiocese were that there were incidences where he was behind the desk and we were talking about personal things like Father Maskell had asked me about. And once again, he was engaging in self-stimulation, okay? And then there were times where I was going behind the desk and I was he was asking me to sit on his lap and things like that. There were two other very graphic memories I have, but I feel a little uncomfortable sharing <laughs> openly, but they were very clear in my mind. And I have, I can remember, I can remember that I was behind the desk. I can remember another time I was in the religious education room and, and I was alone with him in there after school. And that was yet another pretty traumatic experience. Michelle, you're the first person that's mentioned a religious education room. Do you mean a classroom? A classroom you know, where we had where we I had religion class. Okay, so it was a regular classroom with do- with two doors. Uh, yeah, it was a regular classroom, and we were actually working on a project. I was actually writing a a paper about existentialism. I still remember that. And he was ostensibly helping me with that. And that's when that incident happened. Is Magnus the only one that you had that interaction with at the school? Yes. That particular interaction, yes. Yes. What was Magnus's official title at the school? I think he was like the director of religious studies or something like that. Yeah, that's correct. Whatever when that means. That, yeah. So when did you first realize that was happening to other people? Was it not until the uh, when you received the letter in the 90s? You got it. I had no idea. No idea. Michelle, how long did this experience with Magnus last? Did you finish it? What happened was it continued all through my freshman year and my sophomore year. Okay. And, and I think probably a little bit at the beginning of my junior year and then it ended. Okay. And what happened was I wanted out of there so badly because I realized that what was happening was not okay. And I started developing more of a normative experience with peers my own age, okay, a boyfriend. And so I went to, you know, I went to the administration with whom I had a really interesting relationship. And I said, 
I'd really like to get out a year early. I only have a few more credits to take. Is there any possibility that I we could look at the possibility of creating some kind of programs where I could finish out my senior year at a college? And they agreed to have a look at that. And myself and I think two or three other students, and I remember one was Linda Alessandri. I still remember that. We actually didn't graduate right away. We graduated once we had enough credit that we got through our college courses. And I ended up going to Loyola College. So how you you went for your junior year at Keogh or you didn't? Yeah, I did. And then my senior year, I started at Loyola. And so the interactions with Magnus and comments from Maskell, when did that end? I would say that there was, uh, that it was very active in like my freshman and sophomore years and maybe mm-hmm. a little beginning of my junior year and then it ended well. Now, one of the other things they did, and I don't know if you want me to go into this or not, but they referred me for counseling. They had a contract with a group called Psychology Consultants. Do you want me to speak to that at all? Yes. Okay. And so my best friend was seeing that doctor, was it Dr. Olson? What was his name? The one that most of the girls went to see? Dr. Um, Urban. Urban, right. He was seeing him at the school, okay, and her mother was outside the office. She didn't have anything too particularly weird happen to her in those interactions, but I was actually being brought to their offices on 25th Street. I still remember it as clear as day. I was seeing Dr. Gregory Helwig for counseling, and I used to have to go up the stairs in this old building, and his office was up there, and he was doing what he called sensitization exercises with me, okay? And what these were, and this was, again, I was referred by Keo for this treatment. He would ask me things like, to tell me what you find attractive about me. This was a young man in his probably mid-20s, and I was all of 15 at the time. What do you find attractive about me? I'd like you to rate it on a scale from 10 to 1, 10 being the 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 thing you'd like to do to me the most. And when he would be asking me these questions, he would be rubbing my thigh and my shoulders, okay? This is what I can remember. And so I desensitization treatments with him and that again was referred I was referred through Keo for that. His name again, Michelle? Helwig. You remember his first name? Gregory. And is he still living? No, he's deceased. In fact, I believe he was actually on the faculty at Loyola, if I'm not mistaken, at the same time as he was doing this. When you watch The Keepers, when it went out, is that when yeah. you first realized the connection with Skinnell? The connection with Skinnell? I no, actually what happened was that two things happened, okay? One I can't really discuss because it's crossing professional boundaries, okay, and it had to do with a patient of mine, okay? So I can't really speak to that. So I made the connection there. And then when the keepers came out and I saw him there and Gemma was talking to him, even though he didn't look like he did as I remember him, I think maybe he there was a picture of him as well in the keepers when he was younger. And not only did I make the connection with this client, but I also made the connection with the picture I saw in the keepers and it just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. So Michelle, first of all, we yeah. appreciate you doing this. I know it's not easy, but I do want to ask you to talk about the fund that you and John, your husband started. And if you mm-hmm. can give us a little bit of background about that, and then we put the link on the podcast page. 
really happy to do that. Here's what happened. When we went to mediation, okay, some of us were given not only a very small nominal earthment for our miseries and our traumas, but we were also offered a secondary in-kind amount of money, either five or $10,000, which we had to use within two years for treatment, okay? Like a car guarantee, okay? Whatever runs out first. And and it came to my attention from one of my peers that she had gotten a letter from close the Office of Risk Management indicating that her funding was used, okay, and that the archdiocese would no longer be paying for her care. And I was just, even though we accepted that when we went to mediation, honestly, the mediation itself was so re-traumatizing and recapitulated the whole experience. And I can't go into it because I promise not to say a lot, but sitting there, like sitting there and going through the same thing all over again with a bunch of authority figures where I had no power or control. And so I dissociated during that experience, as did my peer. And so I was so angry that she had gotten this letter, which she actually had made public. I called the Office of Risk Management. And I spoke with a Miss Diana Appel. And I said, I cannot believe that. I also spoke with Jerry Burkhardt, okay, that the Archdiocese is not willing to do more for us because we need more treatment. We are struggling with incredible problems, emotional problems, interpersonal problems, career issues, all kinds of issues. And that's very common when you've had post-traumatic stress disorder. And she said, who is your peer? And I said, and I said the person's name. And she said, well, let me look up her file. She looked up her file. She said, oh, yes, that's the letter that we sent to her attorney stating that she had agreed to blah, blah, blah. And so she completely violated her confidentiality, which blew my mind in and mm-hmm. of itself. And then I, I called Jerry Burkhart back and I said, I just want to let you know that there was a violation of HIPAA, which she was very concerned about on the phone. And I said, I really want us to put our heads together and figure out a way that we can keep this treatment going. I know there are good people out there. I know the faithful out there wouldn't mind helping those of us who are trying to live our lives and move forward. So why don't we consider an envelope fund like at the Sunday collection and people can put it in for treatment for survivors. And she thought that was a great idea, honestly. She said, I'm going I'm to speak with Archbishop Lori and I'm going to get back mm-hmm. to you on that. And a couple of days later, she called me back. She said, it's a no-go. It's not going to happen. I said, and you got to be yeah, yeah, Michelle, just to clarify, Jerry Burkhart is the Child Protective Services representative for the Archdiocese, correct? Yeah, the Child Welfare Services or something. Yes, that's yeah, that is okay. He has a license with a worker as well, so that's why I report that HIPAA violation to her, and I also reported it to my board because we're required to do that, and and I also let the person who's you know confidentiality was violated know about it. But anyway, I really believe that Jerry did speak with Archbishop Laurie, and I was appalled that he wouldn't even consider a you know, parish fundraiser. So I was really upset. So I decided to take the bull by the horns, and you and I talked with John, my husband, and we decided to try to pull together a GoFundMe to, for, to raise money for those of us who had our treatment precipitously ended, okay? And so I set a rather ambitious goal, and we are slowly creeping toward that goal. I think we've raised cl- close to $10,000, which is just amazing. We've had people come forward and offer medication management and treatment at reduced rates. We've had a couple of people offer pro bono counseling. So not only do we have funding for potential survivors who come forward and we've started funding them, I believe, but we also have um, treatment providers and clinicians who are offering services. So it's been a real labor of love. And I think it's been an incredible experience to to have started the Sister Kathy Sesnick Fund. So I'm yeah. I'm very proud to be a part of that. And for the listeners, it's called the Sister Kathy Sesnick Survivors Fund. And we yeah. are going to post the link to it 
when we post this podcast, Michelle, so that we're really encouraging people to help fund further therapy or continuing therapy for survivors of clergy abuse in the archdiocese. We are providing financial assistance to some at the moment, but we've really encouraged those who, especially those who were abused by Maskell, we want to take care of those folks and make sure they know that there, yeah, that there's money to, to support their healing. Yeah. And a lot of these folks went to people who were out of their network because they're specialists who are very expensive. Some of them do not take insurance or they've already run out of funds for their co-pays, some of which are pretty large. So this is really supplementing that. And that way there's no break in continuity of treatment where they have to start with someone new. And that's the goal here is the continuity. And for those survivors, we keep posting this, but you can private message Michelle Stanton or Gemma Hoskins and let us know your situation and we will get you the forms that you and your provider can fill out to make you eligible for the financial assistance. Yep. I think we found it pretty easy. Yeah. Yep. And Michelle, the goal is 250000 and I don't think that's too much. Yeah, I think it's pretty reasonable given the number of people out there that are struggling, honestly. And I will say that we did contact those CEOs of very large companies who are raising $18 million for the Archdiocese of Baltimore to build Catholic schools for inner city students. And we've asked in the in their generosity and goodness of their hearts, if they would make a small donation. Mm -hmm. They are raising, as I said, $18 million. And unfortunately, we contacted everybody on that panel and nobody has responded either yes or no. So that's unfortunate, but we hope the interest is there and that they will consider helping because these are good men and women that need help and that are trying to heal and help their families heal. And we think it's not out of the ordinary to ask people who have large companies to make donations. We've had large donations from individuals. We have. We We had a thousand dollar donation just last month. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. And we've had Mm -hmm. people from all over the world donating money, which is really cool. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Michelle, how about if you talk a little bit about maybe your feelings about what's going on now in in Maryland because oh. of what happened in Pennsylvania, like where your head is and all that? I kept telling the archdiocese that they would never hear the end of me. I would never give up and that my my sisters would never give up. And and when the, when the decision came down from Pennsylvania, I sent them one, one sentence. I said, I told you we would never give up, didn't I? And so I feel so validated that Finally, they're looking at maybe even listing the statute of limitations completely for two years. If that would happen, that would be fantastic. And the fact that there's so much growing awareness and that we have been such a, I feel, an integral part of that growing awareness and people not being afraid to talk about what happened. So I'm really excited and I've already been contacted by the Attorney General's office here and will be giving a, a giving my information to them shortly. So I'm feeling really validated, really good that finally we're going to have some real closure and healing and hopefully maybe even some resolution of the murder of Sister Kathy and certainly and Joyce Malek, those are kind of other pieces to this. And so I feel really good about it. Yeah, I'm very encouraged. Michelle, this is your opportunity to say anything you want to anybody uncensored. Is there anything you would like to share either to survivors or those that haven't come forth or to the authority figures that we feel have been involved in the abuse and the cover-up? Well, to the Archdiocese of Baltimore, I say shame on you. And I'm 
unconvinced that they are saying that they will cooperate now with the attorney general's office. I can't but believe that it's coercion that's making them so forthcoming because by God, no pun intended, if Archbishop Lori was unwilling to initiate a fundraiser through envelopes on on Sunday, I'm really not clear on why all the cooperation all of a sudden. And I also wonder what, quote, files are going to be unearthed that haven't been either destroyed or shoved aside or maybe even in the Vatican somewhere in that huge library that they have. And But that's just my, what the way I feel about that. I feel very betrayed. I feel like we have, those of us who have survived this, yeah, we are survivors, but I have to say we're also victims. If you look at the adverse childhood assessment tool, adverse childhood experiences, it's called the ACE. Anybody can take it online. People who have gone through the kinds of things that I have experienced and to a much greater experience, uh, extent, some of my peers who had it even worse, things like cardiovascular disease, which I certainly have, things like anxiety and panic, which I certainly have, and all kinds of other issues like interpersonal difficulties, trust issues, just constant somatic and psychiatric challenges. So this is a lifelong struggle to heal. And to those authority figures, I would say you have to face God as well and what you've done and what you need to do to make this right. To fellow survivors out there, I know it's really hard to talk about this. It's extremely hard for me to talk about it. I didn't say anything for a long time because of my profession, but you know what? It is so important to be able to talk about what happened. It's so cathartic. And it really helps you to move through it. You can't go around it. You've got to move through it. And I think that with a professional holding your hand and your sisters around you, you will heal. And there are those of us on Facebook and on other support groups online that are there to talk with you and talk you through it and just listen. And it's so important to develop trust. That's the first piece of healing is being able to trust other people, which is almost impossible for us. So that's a huge piece. Can you repeat the name of the assessment tool that you said is online? It's the Adverse Childhood Experience Tool, ACE. Yeah. And it's just just take it yourself, just take the assessment yourself, and then you get results immediately. Yeah, you can, you score it and it can tell you, and there's also articles online about what particular maladies or manifestations of illness people manifest later in life as a result of the degrees of trauma they have had at different developmental stages in their life. Again, it's readily available online and it can really help you to understand and put things in perspective. I use it with a lot of my patients. Mm-hmm. Michelle, I really want to applaud you for doing this because you and I talked a long time ago about how you felt like it might be counterproductive for your patients to know about your history. But right. I just want to tell you that you're a gift to me in my life now and to all of your patients. And I, you're so articulate, you're so brilliant. Obviously, you wrote about existentialism, and I could barely even say it when I was in uh, high school. I really don't even know what it is. We'll have to, we'll have to talk about that later. But I just, I hope that you realize how valuable you are to all of us, both emotionally well, and mentally. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate hearing that, Gemma. I feel that you are also a gift in my life. And and I honestly, there are very few of my patients who actually are aware of this and have said Mm -hmm. the same thing to me. This is so helpful to me to have learned this. And I certainly didn't make them aware of it. Mm -hmm. I feel like normalizes it for me. And now I know that if you can go on and do this, I can do it too. So it's been actually very therapeutic. Yeah. And I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. It's been, I have never lost my faith. 
And I do believe that forgiveness is very important. I know that a lot of survivors are, are very angry. I'm very angry as well. But I do think that Christ calls us to move forward in the spirit of forgiveness. And so that is what is in my heart. And so I'm very grateful yeah, for all the people in my life right now. Hearing your story, it's so sad because I feel like not only did you fall victim to these men, but you also fell victim to your own high school and the administrators. I know speaking to other victims who have told us that they did share with one or two other people who could have stopped them, whatever yeah. stood up and stopped it. And I think a lot of us believe that, especially in Father Maskell's case, he was moved school to school whenever some of the allegations would come forward. And the Archbishop and this entire Catholic community who are in charge for Baltimore, it's sad because back then they sided on the predators and not yep. the victims, not the children. And I feel like yep. they're continually doing that today. And yeah, look at all I the hear, money they're spending. Exactly. And when I hear, and I have to be straightforward with you, I'm not Catholic, so I don't know a lot of the Catholic terms that a normal Catholic person knows, but to hear the Pope even to this year say that they're going to have a closed meeting about this abuse and all this, and I just, mm-hmm. I, I, I hate hearing that all these talks are happening behind closed doors. I feel like the door has been closed long enough. And yes, they should it be has. more transparent and open it. Yep. But I think that they should be focused on the victims that not only these men have victimized throughout all these decades, but also the very entity that they put their faith in had also been victimizing their men. And I'm so glad to hear that you've turned your experience in a positive one. So mm-hmm. glad that you and Gemma and oh, I'm blessed. were able to. It's such a great thing. And I really hope that people will get more motivated. And it's sad because you can't count on the Catholic Church of Baltimore to help you with this endeavor to help ensure that all the victims from their actions are taken care of. But I'm glad that yeah. there's people like you and Gemma who have stepped up to take that upon yourself to ensure that everyone does receive help. I feel blessed. I really do. I feel like I do Christian counseling. So I take every opportunity I can, particularly when I have Catholic patients to educate them and Mm -hmm. to help them to become more proactive in their own parishes and to ask for more transparency. And so for me to be able to work on healing with other survivors is also healing for me. And that was God coming into my life and turning this into something positive. And the other thing I wanted to respond to was I, when you think about all of the funding that has gone into the, quote, treatment and housing of these priests, these pedophile priests, and you compare that to the, quote, settlements that has been given to all these men and women whose lives have been destroyed. It's appalling. And it, and it speaks to me of a corporation and not a church entity. And that's kind of the way I've come to see it. I don't think the faith is blighted, but I do feel the institution itself is corrupt. And so it's not a religion anymore. It's a corporation. So I keep my faith, but I cannot affiliate myself with that kind of a structure. So that's where I am. Let's go ahead and dive into the questions. And again, I'll remind everyone that you can share questions you may have on any of the posts that these episodes are being linked to, whether it be the Keepers Facebook page or Out of the Shadows. So the first question I have. Yeah. Please put a cue so we know that it's a question you want us to answer on the air. Yeah. And we're going to try not to ask questions over again. So if we don't ask your question, it might be because we already covered it. Um, But at the end of all these episodes, you'll hear the question. So the first question, have you ever tried linking the cops of the Keogh parishes to any cop pals of Maskell? Could he have brought? Could he have brought Jane Doe's abuser uncle to hush her up? 
That is a huge question. And no, we have never even tried to do that. When you say the Keogh parishes, that would be the parishes from which the girls who attended Keogh came. And if their families were active at church, they would have gone to Mass there on Sundays. But we have no way of knowing which officers were assigned because they're not assigned by parishes. We only know the names of one, maybe two officers who were involved in the abuse. And so that's a very, that would be a very difficult thing to undertake. We would have to probably have all the parishes and then figure out which jurisdictions they're in. And then we'd have to go back 50 years and see which police officers were assigned there. So that is not something that we've been able to do. And the second question was about Jean's uncle. Is that correct? Yeah. What was that part of the question? The question was, could he have brought Jane Doe's abuser uncle in to hush her up? I have no idea. The only person that would know that would be Jean. And that is not something that she's chosen to share at this time. All right. So the next question is, has Jean ever taken a walk through the building that once was Archbishop Keogh High School? Senses such as smell can bring back memories. Jean is a very private person, and she has not done that to my knowledge. It's possible, but at this time, I think it would probably be too triggering for her to do that. She only looks at photographs if they're in an envelope and she can open those with someone else. So for her to take a walk through that building, that I doubt very much if she's done that and if she has not told any of us about it. Yeah, I think that a a request like that, it may only come from the police requesting her to do that. But even Mm -hmm. then, they would have Specialist, I'm sure. If that's something that she has done or plans to do, that would be up to her to share that information. So the next question is, with the report coming out of Pennsylvania and the new rift in the upper echelons of the church, do you see any hope for survivors who have been unable to speak up till now coming forward with information about Sister Kathy? That's an interesting question. Yes, I think they are coming forward with their stories of abuse. I know they have because most of them share that with me. I do not know if anybody has been able to share any information about Sister Kathy. I hope if they know something that they will certainly do that. I do know that every person I know who contacted the Attorney General's office has in turn been contacted by the criminal investigator who is emailing them and then talking by phone and then setting up a face-to-face interview with the investigator and the assistant attorney general. I would imagine that if anybody has information about Sister Kathy, that it will come out in those sessions. Yeah, and just to add to that a little bit, I think the more that we continue the conversation and the more that the attorney generals are looking into it, anyone who may have a connection with the Catholic Church, maybe an administrator or they work within the Catholic community, up until this point, they may not have felt comfortable or safe to come forward and say something. So the more that we continue down this road of people feeling more comfortable to speak about it, that would be the time when these people may feel more comfortable coming forward. And I heard from a survivor that did meet already with the criminal investigator that the survivor was told that if anybody has information to share, that they can certainly protect that person's anonymity. So even if a report is made by the attorney general, as was done in Pennsylvania, They respect and honor somebody's request to keep their own identity anonymous. So please, if you know something, please contact them. We'll post that link again on the podcast link. Yeah. 
Yep, we will have it in the show notes as well, along with a link to be able to find the GoFundMe that Gemma and Michelle were able to set out. All right, the next question is, Gemma, will you and Abby please come to Pittsburgh? We can visit Kathy's grave and I'll take you to lunch. That's a very nice invitation. I'll have to think about that. I have to go back and look at who sent that question in. I was just copying and pasting the questions for this evening. <laughs> I d- I've been to Pittsburgh one. I guess I could go back again, but that would be in the future sometime, maybe. Thank you for the invitation. And yes, I'll have lunch with you. All right. So the next question is, has Maskell been connected to, and I'm not going to pronounce this name right, Merzabaker? Merzbacher. Merzbacher. And to continue the question, it's, could the former principal of Merzbacher School, Senior Eileen Wiseman, have information regarding Maskell? Reach out to WJZTV had a report involving Sister Eileen, or excuse me, Senior Eileen, and her knowledge of Martin Baker's crimes. I don't, I can't pronounce that name, but you get what I'm trying to say. Merzbacher, yes. Uh, yes, absolutely. Maskell and Mersbacher were connected. When Mersbacher was teaching at the Catholic Community Middle School, he was what's called a lay teacher. He was not a priest. Lay means not clergy. Maskell at the time was assigned to the downtown office of the Archdiocese of Baltimore, supposedly to keep an eye on him. But he was assigned to the Division of Schools, and that gave him the license to go anywhere he wanted in the county and or in the archdiocese. So, yes, he, the students at the Catholic Community Middle School do remember seeing him in the building. We also know that a young man that reported that teacher Mersbacher was having sex with principal Nun, SSND, Eileen Weissman, in her office, he saw them and told other students. Next thing he knew was Maskell was brought in to evaluate him. And this young man, who's not a young man anymore, but younger than I am, told me himself that he was terrified. He was 12 years old. He was in a room with Maskell alone. Maskell was asking him a lot of questions and was able to skew the results and tell the young man's parents that their son belonged in a mental institution. So the young man was taken out of that middle school and put in Shepherd Pratt Residential, which is a large mental institution in the Baltimore area, in February of seventh grade. He remained there. And at the end of seventh grade, was given the opportunity to go back to his regular school, at which time he said no. He felt safer at Shepherd Pratt. Maskell visited him there often and regularly to make sure that the kid knew that Maskell was looking over his shoulder. So at the end of eighth grade, the young man was able to join his regular classmates at Southern High School. So he never had to go back to the Catholic Community Middle School. So yes, Maskell definitely was involved. Maskell was also present in a meeting where a teacher came forward and reported that Mersbacher was abusing the children. And this teacher was called into a meeting where Maskell was present and was told that he either had to resign or be fired. And the guy opted to resign, and he's living happily and well in another part of the United States. I've had some communication with him. But again, it was all coercion, and none of it was good. And I'm sure that if we ask the archdiocese if they have records about that, they're going to say no. But we've heard this from eyewitnesses. So I think that answers that question. And Sister Eileen Weissman was taken out of that school, and she was still a nun. She was placed 
as principal at Cathedral School in Baltimore on Charles Street, at which time the parents heard about what happened at Catholic Community Middle School, and she had to be moved out of there. I can't believe the archdiocese actually put her in that school. So right now, she still lives in Baltimore. She is not permitted to be around children, and she lives with the school sisters of Notre Dame. Very good answer, Gemma. That was very, very <laughs> thorough. That's a whole other story. <laughs> All right. So the last question is, have any employees from Dr. Is it Richter? Richt, Richter. Richter. So let me start it over. Have any employees from Dr. Richter's office come forward with information? Yes, they have. One contacted me through Facebook Messenger to tell me that she worked in that office for about six months and was not comfortable, realized something was going on that wasn't right, and decided to leave. Others, I believe, we he was questioned about the identity of some of the people that worked for him and his comment before he passed away was that there were so many that he couldn't remember their names. So for anybody that worked for Christian Richter, would you please contact us and talk to us or contact the police and talk to the police or contact the attorney general and talk to them? Because we know from survivors who were just young teenagers that oftentimes the assistant who should be in the room for gynecological examinations was told that they could leave and Maskell and Richter would do the examination together, which is just sickening to me. And yes, abuse went on there as well. All right, Jim. So I think that takes care of takes care of the questions for this episode. Was there okay. anything else that you wanted to add before we close out? No, I just thank your listeners. Please send more questions. I'm almost to the end of the questions that have been submitted. I can't believe that. So <laughs> anybody on the keepers page, please send us, or on the podcast page, please send us questions marked with a Q. And Shane, why don't you go ahead and announce to your listeners the good news that we received today. Yeah, so if you were listening to the Redhead series, the Redhead Motor series, uh, in the previous season of the podcast, we did receive confirmation back. Elizabeth called me a little while ago to let us know that they did identify the Jane Doe found in Barberville, Kentucky, as the uh, as her mom. So now we have three out of six. Jane Doe's with the name. So that's uh, a huge, a huge step in the right direction for us. So I'm super excited about that. 